Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. Grab a Bible and go with me to the Old Testament book of Jonah. When you get there, just light on chapter 1. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning as we begin a new study called Jonah. And the tagline is Running from God. Uh, my son Andrew and I are writing these uh, three messages together, and I'm uh, going to share with you from chapter 1. And want to welcome everybody across the street, the video venue, and all the folks joining us online. I was told uh, a few minutes ago that we had folks joining us from... Uh, the Philippines, from Germany, from Brazil, and from Costa Rica. So wherever you are, we're really glad that you're a part of our service today. While you're turning there to Jonah chapter 1, let me just ask you a question. Is there a better story in the Bible than the story of Jonah? What a great, great story. Generations of wide-eyed children have just listened in absolute amazement to this incredible story over the years of how God used a fish to catch a man. I was reminded of that uh, a few weeks ago. Every Sunday after church, my family has lunch at our house, and so uh, at some point, I'll always ask the grandkids, you know, what'd you talk about in church today, or what'd you learn in church today? And on that particular weekend, it was the story of Jonah. And so I got a grandson named Jack, and when that came up, he leapt up on his chair. He was sitting on his chair. Now he's standing on his chair. He's so excited, and he begins to hold court for the family, explaining the details, including sound effects, of the Old Testament story of Jonah. And then he put an exclamation point on it at the end by saying, it was so unbelievable, <laughs> just like that. And uh, it just reminded me of how wonderful it is when our children get to learn the stories of uh, the Bible from the time they're very, very young. But I think all of us who are here this morning understand that there's so much more to the story of Jonah than just a big fish. It's not a story about a big fish. It's a story about grace. It's a story about God's grace. I think we could even go so far as to say it's a story about God's outrageous or scandalous grace. Some years ago, a man named Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. Maybe you're familiar with it. And in the book, he called Grace uh, one of the last great words, one of the last great words, and that's easy to understand when you find out what the real meaning of grace is, which is not always easy. It's easy to understand grace from a, a purely worldly or secular, pers secular perspective. You can look in the dictionary and you can find it described uh, by words like elegance or mercy or favor, and all of those are accurate on some level. All of those communicate at least some aspect of God's grace, but they fall short of the biblical definition of grace. The classic biblical definition of grace, God's grace is unmerited favor, something we receive, something God does for us that we could never, ever earn, and no matter what we do, we would never, ever deserve. That's really the meaning of grace, but even with that kind of clarity, it's sometimes still difficult for some people to understand. In that book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Yancey goes on to say that part of the problem with understanding grace is found in the nature of grace. He says, grace is hard to accept, hard to believe, and hard to receive. It's like when a telemarketer calls you on the telephone and says, listen, I really don't want to sell you anything. I want to, all I want to do today is give you an absolutely free trip to Hawaii. How many of you believe that it's going to be absolutely free? We know that it's not. We know, we, what's, our, what's our first response? Our first response is, what's the catch? 
Because we've been around long enough to know that there's no such thing as something that's absolutely free. There's always a catch. But here's the deal. When it comes to grace, when it comes to God's grace, it is literally absolutely free. It's absolutely free for everyone. And that shocks some people. That even frightens some people because it means that through grace, God saves people that we probably wouldn't be willing to save on our own. Which brings up a pretty good question. If you were God, that's a kind of a frightening thought, isn't it? But if you were God, here's the question, who would you save? I mean, you were God, you had the opportunity to offer salvation to anyone you wanted. Who would you choose to save? Now, most of us probably would save people that we could find a way to put into a category of not so bad. We wouldn't require people to be perfect because none of us are perfect, right? Please, somebody say right. None of us are perfect. No perfect people allowed in this church. So we would put people in a category, if we, if we could find a way to put somebody in a category of not so bad, we would probably be willing to save them. But God, Yancey says in his book, starts when it comes to who he's willing to save, he starts with prostitutes and he works his way down from there. God gives his grace to everyone. God gives his grace to people who don't deserve it, to people who barely recognize it, and to people who hardly appreciate it. And the bottom line is, God's grace saves people that you and I probably wouldn't save if we were God. And that brings us to the story of Jonah, because as I mentioned, this is really a story. Not a story about a big fish, it's a story about the grace of God. And we're going to be looking at chapter 1 here in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to make sure, even though I know we're probably all familiar with the story, I want to make sure that we all start on the same page, and I want to just share some really brief things about the story of Jonah. First of all is this. Write this down in your notes by way of introduction. Jonah is not the hero of the story. God is because the story is all about God. Jonah is not the hero of the story. You know what? If I could summarize the story of Jonah like this. It begins with, God, with Jonah running from God. It ends with Jonah arguing with God. And in the middle, Jonah is doing some praying and he's doing some preaching. But the bookends aren't very good. He's running from God, then he's arguing with God. Jonah is not the hero of this story God is. This story is all about God. Let me break it down like this. In the book of Jonah, Jonah is mentioned 18 times. The great city of Nineveh is mentioned nine times. The big fish that swallows Jonah is mentioned four times, and God is mentioned 38 times. God is the hero of the story in the book of Jonah because the book is all about him. It's all about God's heart for people. The second thing I would tell you about the book of Jonah, I want to make sure we're all on the same page, is this is a true story. Just in case there's any doubt in anybody's mind this morning, this is an absolutely true story. Over the years, there's probably not another story in the Bible that the critics and the skeptics of the Bible have taken shots at more than the story of the book of Jonah because it just seems unbelievable. Like my grandson Jack says, it seems unbelievable to some people. It's unbelievable to some people that a man could literally live for three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, but it's a true story. We need to understand that it's not a myth, it's not a legend, it's not a fable, it's not an allegory, it's not a parable, it's not hyperbole, it's an absolutely true story. There was a man named Jonah in the Bible. We find out about him even before we get to the book of Jonah. We can date the book of Jonah all the way back to 765 B.C. Jonah came from a place that was really in Holy Land, was not very far from the village of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Everything about this story is true. 
And I got to thinking about how difficult it is for some people to accept this story from the standpoint of the idea of a man literally surviving in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights. And so just for the sake of argument, I came up with three uh, possible ways that this could have happened, three possible ways God could have made this happen. And I'm going to describe each one of those ways with a single word. Write these down just in case you find yourself face-to-face with somebody debating the truthfulness of the story of Jonah. The first word is natural. It could have happened in a very completely natural way. The problem that people have is that phrase, three days and three nights. But in ancient Hebrew, that was an expression that just meant three days and was applicable even if the beginning and ending days were periods that were really only partial days. It's the same thing when you think about Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross and he was laid in the tomb, we say that he was in the tomb three days and three nights, right? Everyone say right. But we know from biblical history that he went on a Friday night and he rose on a Sunday morning, right? And there was only one full day in between. But that phrase, three days and three nights, could mean three days even if some of them were partial days. And you can, you can do the math to it. You can think about days being 24 hours long. You can put a calculator to it and you can think, well, he could have been, you know, in the belly of the well as little as 38 hours, for example. And it still would have fit the category of three days and three nights. There's always some air in the stomach of a, of a whale, for example, as long as the, whatever the whale or the big fish has swallowed hasn't, uh, as long as that whatever it is that they swallowed is still alive, the digestive process hasn't begun yet. And so all of this could have certainly happened within the framework of just natural life and living. You know, let's say that the, uh, let's say that the, uh, the digestive uh, uh, effort had already started, and most people believe that, you know, the, the, the juices, the digestive juices would have bleached Jonah's skin to where it was white and his clothes white. Well, how impressive would that have been when the, he, the fish vomited Joseph, or excuse me, Jonah up on the, on the shore, and he went to Nineveh, and he was white. You think that would have captured anybody's attention? Absolutely. But I think it could have happened naturally. Write down the second word. It could have just been a miracle. And this is what I believe. It just was a supernatural miracle. I don't personally, I don't know about you, I don't have any problem at all believing that God supernaturally preserved Jonah's life while he was in the belly of that great fish for three days and three nights until he came to a time of prayer and repentance, just like the story suggests. Here's an interesting thought. Here's the third word. Here's the third way it could have happened. Maybe it was a resurrection. Maybe Jonah did suffocate and die in the belly of that great fish, and God raised him back to life where he had a time of prayer and repentance that led to his being delivered. You know, there are at least eight other stories of resurrections in the, in the Bible, in the entire Bible, not counting the greatest story of resurrection, which was Jesus himself. In the Bible, Jesus talks about the story of Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, he cites the story of Jonah, and he says, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man in the tomb three days, three nights. God can, how, how many of you believe that God can do anything he wants to do? So... There's no question in my mind that this is an absolutely true story. However this happened, whether it was natural, whether it was a supernatural miracle, whether it was a resurrection, this is a true story, however it happened. Write down this next thing. It's a short story. The book of Jonah is a short story. There are only four chapters, 48 verses, just a little over 1,300 words. You could go home today and read the entire book. It wouldn't take you more than about 15 minutes. But it tells all we need to know about the heart of God. And the final thing I would say about the book of Jonah is it's a revealing story. It's a revealing story. I've always believed, I don't know how you look at this, but I've always believed that the Bible was, in a, in a way, it was like a mirror. 
And what I mean by that is whenever I open up my Bible and I read it, I see the reflection of myself in there. Has that ever happened to you? Now, normally I don't see the reflection of myself in a positive way. I normally see the reflection of myself in a bad way because the Bible reveals the things in my life that are not right. It reveals my disobedience. It reveals my blind spots. It reveals my shortcomings. It reveals the things in my life that I need to do better. And so I think of the Bible as being revealing overall. But the story of Jonah is a revealing story because we all got a little Jonah inside of us. And I say that because here's the question. Don't raise your hand. How many of you have have ever been in a situation where you've known exactly what it is God wanted you to do and you just chose to do the exact opposite? We probably all have, at least on some level, in some way. And so it's a revealing story because we can see ourselves in the book of Jonah. All right. Having said that, having introduced it that way, stand together with me wherever you are in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do. And let's read... Jonah chapter 1, which is going to be our text for today. It's a little longer than our normal text, but it's a captivating story. It's an unbelievable story, and so I guarantee it will capture your attention. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck and where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they ask him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And this terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. All right, there it is. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. I read that, and it made me remember the sound effects from my grandson, Jack, who said when the fish swallowed Jonah, it was like this. Now, when I first looked at this and I thought about preaching from chapter 1, I thought, well, I'm going to outline the chapter like this. I'm going to say, number one, God says go. Number two, Jonah says no. Number three, God says whoa. But that sounded a little bit too cheesy for me. So let's just talk about the story, and then I'm going to give you some application points that I think can be pretty powerful for all of our lives. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2, God speaks to Jonah, which is an incredible thing. In and of itself, however it happened, he said, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up 
before me. And then we get the verse 3, which is really the key verse for us today. And it's the key verse for the beginning of the story. I'm going to put it up on the screen. And because it's so important, I want you to read it with me. Let me hear your voices. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, the question, friends, is why? Why did Jonah run from God in this call to go to Nineveh? Why was Jonah such a reluctant missionary? Well, I think we should keep it really simple. The answer is Jonah didn't care about Nineveh, and Jonah didn't think God should care about Nineveh. In fact, I don't think it would be wrong for me to even take that a step further and say, Jonah, I don't think Jonah wanted to serve a God who cared about a place like Nineveh. And the reason was because the people of Nineveh, folks, they were really, really bad. Nineveh was located in Assyria, which is modern-day Iraq for you and me. It's first mentioned all the way back in the Bible in the book of Genesis, chapter 10 and verse 11. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And at the time of Jonah's story, there would have been a population in the city of Nineveh of more than 120,000 people. The site of the ancient city of Nineveh has been discovered, and it was ge- from a geographical standpoint, it was huge. It said that it would take a person three days walking to cover the length and the breadth of the city of Nineveh. But the thing that we need to know about Nineveh and the people there more than anything else is that they were really, really bad. Really bad. They were extremely wicked. The Assyrians were a notoriously brutal people. Assyrian kings boasted of the horrific ways they massacred their enemies and mutilated their captives from dismemberment to decapitation to burning prisoners alive to other indescribably gory forms of torture. The Assyrians posed a constant danger to the Israelites and the nation of Israel. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that just a few decades after the story of Jonah, God used the Assyrians. How many of you know that God, because he's sovereign, can use anybody to do anything? He can use the most wicked people in the world to accomplish his purposes. How many of you know that? We need to remember that because we got a presidential election coming up. How many of you know that's true? (laughs) And so just a few decades after the story of Jonah, God used the Assyrians to punish and judge the people of the northern kingdom of Israel by conquering them and carrying them off into a captivity that they never returned from. He used them completely. Now, I could go on and on and on, and I could give you some extremely graphic descriptions of the depravity of these people because I found lots and lots of references in my study, but I don't think that's necessary. The bottom line is the people of Nineveh were as far from God as possible And I don't think it's wrong to say that not only did Jonah not care about the people of Nineveh, he probably, if he was honest, would tell you that he hated them. And it was perfectly fine with him for God to send those people straight to hell. In fact, that was probably his preference. So when God came and said, I want you to preach, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh, and I want you to preach against it, Jonah did just the opposite. Now listen to me literally. He did just the opposite. Listen to this. From a purely geographical standpoint, Nineveh was 500 miles to the east, a little bit north, but 500 miles to the east and north of where Jonah was. So what Jonah does is he goes down to the seaport city of Joppa, and he boards a ship that's headed to a place called Tarshish, which is almost 2,000 miles due west in Spain. 
And so when you put that together, God comes along. He says, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because the wickedness of the people has come up before me. Jonah was prepared to put 2,500 miles of distance between himself and the call of God. God said to Jonah, I want you to go east. And Jonah says, I'm going to go west. That's exactly what he did. And we all know what happened next. God sent a storm, and it was a storm literally of supernatural proportions. Verse 4 of chapter 1 said the ship threatened to break apart. And the sailors on board, who no doubt were seasoned sailors and veterans and had been through storms before, were so frightened that it says that they were calling out on their, to their pagan gods, small g, gods, to save them. They were desperate. They were trying to get help anywhere they could. Ultimately, they realized there was something bigger going on, and so they ended up confronting Jonah, who told them that he was running away from God, told them who he was. Jonah admitted that it was his fault and said that they could solve the problem simply by throwing him into the sea. And the most amazing thing happened next, at least to me, I don't know about you, but they refused at least initially to do that. The story says that they began to row even harder to try to get the ship to safety, but finally they came to the place where they realized there was nothing they could do. And they threw Jonah into the sea. And three things happened. The sea became calm. The sailors offered a sacrifice to God and said, the story said they made vows to God. And then God sent that great fish. That's the literal language from the Hebrew, by the way. We think of it as a whale. Jonah, the story of Jonah is a whale of a tail. But we, we think of it as a whale oftentimes. But in the original language, it's just described as a great fish to swallow Jonah where he stayed for the next three days and three nights. What a story. Can you imagine the story of Jonah being made into a movie? I mean, you ever been to one of those movies that, you know, there's an action sequence, and so the movie might be about two hours long, but there was like 10 minutes when you thought your life was going to come apart. You were gripped, and it was just the sound was around you and the action, and it was just incredible. Had you on the edge of your seat? I think that's the way the story of Jonah would be. But beyond that, I think there's some incredibly powerful lessons for us to learn from Jonah. I started off with 12 of them, pared it down to six, and I'm going to do them so quick that you're going to be so shocked that you got out on time. So write down next to number one as we begin. Here's the first thing I wrote down. A single sentence can sometimes change your life. It's amazing. But in life, sometimes a single sentence can change your entire life. You can be driving down the highway, get a phone call that changes your life forever. If it's good news, your life changes one way. If it's bad news, your life changes the other way. But either way, I think all of us would agree that as we go through life, life can sometimes turn on a dime. And that's what happened to Jonah when God showed up and spoke the words, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has come up before me. But let's just think about that for a minute. You know, what God was asking Jonah to do was really difficult. God wasn't showing up and saying, Jonah, I just want you to know that I love you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. God wasn't showing up saying, Jonah, this is how you can find your best life now, which is what so many people are looking for today. God showed up and asked Jonah to do something very risky and very frightening and very dangerous. But what we need to understand is that this is what God sometimes does in our lives. He shows up and asks us to do really difficult things. And Jonah didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it because, as I told you, the people of Nineveh were really bad. They were wicked on steroids, and he had no interest in being any part of them. But that's what God told him to do. Now, what if God showed up in your life in some dramatic way and told you or communicated to you somehow through his word 
that he wanted you to do something really difficult as well? What if God showed up and said, I want you to go to your Nineveh? What qualifies as your Nineveh today? Nineveh is whatever takes us out of our comfort zone. Nineveh is a place that we want to go that we don't have any interest in, but God does. Nineveh is going to people who have hurt you or are dangerous or are a threat to you. Nineveh is going someplace where that you might hate, but God deeply loves. I could describe it in a variety of different ways, but what are you going to do? The bottom line is, what are any of us going to do when God, one day, out of the blue, gives us a similar instruction and wants to change our lives with a single sentence? What are we going to do? Because that's how God sometimes works. we got to be prepared. Obviously, we have a classic example of what not to do, but what are we going to do? Write down the second thing. The second thing I wrote down, and this is so important. Listen to me. What I'm about to talk about for just a couple of minutes is so important for all of us, regardless of our age. But if you're a parent today, you're a parent today and you still got children that are living in your home under your, under your leadership and your authority and your stewardship, I want you to listen really close to what I'm about to say because this needs to be communicated to your children. Every step out of the will of God is a step down. Write that down. Every step out of the will of God is a step down. So we know in verse 2, uh, God speaks to Jonah and says, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And in verse 3, Jonah begins to do just the opposite. And in verse 3, it says, Jonah went, now note this, he went down to Joppa. And the key word here is down. Jonah went down to Joppa. We need to understand that on two levels. First of all, as a purely practical level, uh, for Jonah to go down to Joppa literally means he had to go down to the seacoast where the port of Joppa was. And so just from a geographic standpoint, he went down. But second and most important, when Jonah went down to Joppa, we need to understand that he was going down spiritually. He was going down spiritually because every step out of the will of God is a step down. And that downward journey just continued. When he got on the ship, he went down below deck where he fell fast asleep. When there was no other way for the ship to be saved, the sailors threw Jonah down into the sea. And chapter one ends with Jonah going down into the belly of a great fish. Now listen, friends, this is more than just a play on words. When you disobey God, your life never goes up, it always goes down. And that's an immutable truth. It's a fundamental, basic, immutable spiritual truth that we need to embrace in our lives. We need to make sure our children understand and embrace in their lives as well. Because, see, here's the problem. There might be times in your life when going down feels like, at least initially, that it's safe and it's secure. So think about that from the perspective of Jonah, okay? God shows up. Once you go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And so Jonah immediately goes down to the seaport of Joppa, city of Joppa. He buys a ticket to a place called Tarshish. He gets on a ship, goes down below the ship, and immediately falls asleep. So he's got no problems, right? Everything is going pretty smoothly. And he probably felt like everything was pretty safe and pretty smooth and pretty secure all the way up to when somebody woke him up and said, we got a big problem here. We're in the middle of a big storm, and we need to talk to you about it. Sometimes God doesn't immediately bring punishment into our lives when we disobey, but that doesn't mean, and this is what we communicate to our children, that doesn't mean that ultimately the punishment doesn't come if we continue to disobey. I hope that we all understand the truthfulness of that. 
Whenever you disobey God, you're moving down in your life. You're not moving up. You can't, you can't disobey God and be moving up in your life ever. You're always going down. Always. From a spiritual standpoint, you are always, always going down. We need to remember that. Right down next to number three. I told you we're doing this quickly. And this might sound a little bit odd in the beginning, but bear with me. When we decide to disobey God, there's always going to be a boat ready to take us to Tarshish. When we decide to disobey God, there's always going to be a boat ready to take us to Tarshish. So we know the story. Jonah decides to run from God. He heads to Joppa where he just so happens to find a boat that's going in the exact opposite direction of where God wants him to go. Now, everybody look up here, and I'm going to ask you a question. What do you think the chances are of that? What do you think the chances are of that? Let's remember when we're talking about, okay, we can date the book of Jonah at 765 B.C. That's a long, long time ago. Now, you think about international travel in 765 B.C. Do you think it was a casual, ordinary, normal thing, international travel? A journey going 2,000 miles in 765 B.C. We can, we can leave church today. We can drive over to the Indianapolis airport, and chances are we can go in. We can look at the big board, and we can find some place where we could go today. As long as we got our passport, we could find some place that we could go to get as far away from here as possible, right? We could do that. You think you could do that in 765 B.C.? This ship was going 2,000 miles away from where Jonah was. 2,500 miles away from where God wanted Jonah to be. I don't think there was probably a ship headed to Tarshish every single day of the week, do you? But there just so happened to be one the day that Jonah was running away from God. So here's my point, and I think we need to pay attention to this. When we decide to disobey God, there's always going to be a boat ready to take us to Tarshish. And the reason why is because we've got an enemy, the devil, who wants to destroy our lives, who loves it when we're living in disobedience to God, and he is always more than happy to provide transportation for us when we're running away from God or when we're going in the opposite direction of what God wants us to do. And we need to understand that. And that's important, again, because there could be, there could be a misunderstanding on our part, you know. So Jonah, Jonah gets this message from God to go one way. He says, I'm going to go the other way. And he goes down to the seaport city of Joppa, and he buys a fare on a ship headed to Tarshish, 2,000 miles away from where he was, 2,500 miles away from where God wanted him to go. And Jonah could have been guilty of having a blind spot in his life right now, thinking, you know what? If God really didn't want me to do this, it wouldn't have been so easy. And he could have fooled himself in the moment into believing that he wasn't doing something that was really that bad. Or maybe he could have gotten to a place where he, he, he just thought, you know, God, God's not going to punish me for this because all the pieces of my plan are falling into place. Over the years, I've had people tell me some pretty creative stories to try to rationalize their sinful and their disobedient behavior. But I'm going to come back to what I said a minute ago. Just because we don't experience the judgment of God immediately when we disobey Him does not mean the judgment won't come. And we can't kid ourselves. When I was in Oklahoma, we had a young man who came to the church that I served there who had just made a lot of mistakes in his life. His life was characterized more by the things he had done wrong than the things that he did right. But he, I, I thought he had a genuine, sincere heart to 
uh, and desire to turn his life around. And so, uh, you know, he became a part of our church family. And one of our elders took him under his wing and began to personally disciple him, meet with him and lead him and share him with him and try to instruct him in the deeper truths of, of, uh, of the Lord and the, and the word of God. And he was doing really good until one day, just out of the blue, he just did something really stupid. He just made a really bad mistake. He just reverted all the way back to his old behavior patterns and did something really dumb. And so the elder in my church confronted him in a loving way, but a firm way, confronted him. And when it was all said and done, this was the guy's response. He said, well, you know, sometimes it's just easier to do the wrong thing. And you know what my elder said? He said, no, not sometimes, always. How many of you know that's true? It's always easier to do the wrong thing. And sometimes we do the wrong thing, and it seems like we're getting away with it. We seems, it seems like God is kind of, you know, turning the other way, but that's, is that ever the case? Everyone say no. It's never the case. And Satan is more than happy to provide you transportation when you're running away from God, so you need to recognize that for what it is and not be deceived. Right down next to number four. I'm thinking about this story as it unfolds in the first chapter, and I wrote down, it's amazing how quickly a conscience can become seared. It's amazing how quickly a conscience can become seared. You know what Jonah was? Jonah was a prophet. Now, he falls into the category of minor prophets in the Old Testament, but Jonah was a prophet. You know what the classic definition of a prophet is? A man of God. A prophet was a man of God who stood before the people of God on behalf of God and stood before God on behalf of the people of God. This was a man of God, the man of God bearing the message of God. It's all about being a man of God. And so Jonah was a man who had a relationship with God, obviously, or God wouldn't have called him to go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it. He was a man of God, so he had to have some level of spiritual conscience, but how quickly was his conscience seared? God said, go one way, and he said, I'm going to go the other way, and he gets on a boat headed the other way, and the story tells us that he went down below, and he fell asleep, but the Bible doesn't say he just fell asleep. You remember what it said? It said he fell what? Fast asleep. Now, you ever had a hard time sleeping because your conscience bothered you? Yeah, I mean, you ever had a, a hard time just concentrating on something because your conscience was bothering you? But look, look how quickly Jonah's conscience was seared. He was either deceived by being able to, to get uh, on a ship going the opposite direction so easily, or he was deceived by just somehow convincing himself that, you know what, I love God and, I'm, and, and God's my guy, but he's, in this situation, God's just wrong about this. The people of Nineveh are not worth saving. Somehow he convinced himself, but the bottom line, his conscience became completely seared to where he had no sense of guilt or remorse about the fact that he was disobeying God. And I tell you what, folks, I've seen this in people over the years over and over and over again. It's easy. We all get these blind spots, and our consciences become seared in those areas. We always like to say, let your conscience be your guide. Is that always good advice? No, because a conscience can be seared so easily. We can have these big blind spots in our lives where we don't even pay attention to our conscience. It's not even a part of what's going on. Your conscience can only be your guide when your conscience is in harmony with the will of God and the word of God. And your conscience can become seared so quickly. And sometimes it takes something pretty serious to get your conscience back on track. Right down next to number five. How sad is it that there are times when unbelievers have more compassion for people than believers? Here's why I say that. I go back to verse 11, okay? Now we're in the midst of all the drama. We're in the midst of all the action trying to figure out how to save this ship and how to save these lives. Verse 11 says, The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, that's Jonah, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? 
His reply was, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. In verse 13, we alluded to this earlier. Instead, instead, verse 13 says, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then finally, after they cried out to God and begged God for mercy for what they were about to do, they threw Jonah over the side of the ship. So how ironic is it that you've got a man of God, Jonah, the man of God, on the ship, going the opposite direction of where God wanted him to go because he didn't care enough about the people that God wanted him to save. And you've got a bunch of sailors on this ship who are pagans. We know they're pagans because at one point they cried out to their gods. Look back in your text. Gods, little g, plural, gods. They're multiple pagan gods to help them. And yet... When the man of God was not willing to help somebody in need, these pagans were certainly willing to do everything to try to help this man of God. You see any irony in that? Unbelievers cared more about this believer than this believer cared about other unbelievers. That's really odd and pretty sad. You know, oftentimes when people on the outside of the church, people who may necessarily be believers on the outside of the church, think about the church and they think about Christians, people like you and me, they don't have very positive thoughts about us. They think of us as being hateful. They think of us as being angry. They think of us as being uh, intolerant. They think of us as being, man, you can just throw in a number of different words. And you know why they think that way? Because sometimes, what am I going to say? It's true. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we're more focused on enforcing rules than we are extending grace. And we deserve that reputation at times. And so sometimes I think we can learn a lot from the unbelieving world. We can learn a lot from the secular world when it comes to just accepting people, when it comes to just being willing to welcome people, when it comes to just being willing to befriend people. We talked a couple of weeks ago in that story from John chapter 4 and Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well how important it is for us to learn. If we saw everybody the same way Jesus does, how important it is for us, we would learn to speak the truth without condemnation. I think this is one of the saddest parts of the story, that Jonah, the man of God, didn't care enough about people to save them, but people who didn't even believe in God, not the one true God, cared enough about him to do everything they could to try to save him. There's a lesson to be learned from that. Finally, number six, I wrote down in my notes, the kindness of God will often show up in the most unusual way. You know, if you read this chapter 1, there's no question that this storm that threatened to break the ship apart, this storm that was unlike anything these seasoned sailors had ever seen before so that they are crying out to their gods to save them, seemed like the, most, the worst and most difficult trying experience of their life. It was a storm that threatened their lives. It was a storm that caused them to throw Jonah overboard where he was swallowed by a great fish. There's no way that you could look at that and think that there was anything but really, really bad. And yet, and yet, by virtue of knowing the entire story, we have to come to the conclusion that really what looked like to be the, the most difficult thing God could do turned out to be an act of great kindness because it was that storm that set the stage for turning Jonah's life around. And so the point is sometimes the kindness of God shows up in unusual ways. 
We find ourselves sometimes going through really difficult trials in our lives and going through our own difficult storms. And we might be tempted to think this is the worst thing I've ever experienced. But here's what we need to do. We need to have the, the, the common sense and we need to have the courage and we need to have the humility when we find ourselves in the midst of the storms to stop and pause, to push the pause button and just say, God, what are you trying to teach me in the middle of this storm? Is there something you're trying to say? What am I missing here? Because God's not going to get you through the storm until you learn what God wants you to learn. And for Jonah, it was learning. You can't run from God. And maybe that's a lesson God wants to teach you as well. Maybe you walked in this morning and you're going through the middle of a big storm. Maybe you tuned in today and you're going through the, you're right in the middle of a big storm. And it seems like the worst thing ever happened to your life. And I'm telling you that if you respond to it with an open and a humble and an obedient heart, it might be the greatest evidence of the kindness of God that you ever experienced in your life. I don't know. I don't know. Because I don't know the storm. I don't know the details. I'm just saying, you know, when I look at chapter 1, I see Jonah was running from God. Do you know what I also see? I see God was going with him every step of the way, wasn't he? And I see that while Jonah was trying to abandon God, God never abandoned Jonah, right? Even in the midst of the storm, God never abandoned him. And you might be running from God, but I'm telling you, God's with you every step of the way. And you might be trying to avoid God or ignore God or get away from God, but he's not ever going to do those things to you. And at some point, you've got to say, what do I need to learn in the storm? What's the message? What's the lesson? Sometimes the kindness of God shows up in the most unusual ways. Okay, let me close it by just asking you a real honest question today. Let me ask a question. As you look at your life right now, I mean, if you're completely, totally honest and open with yourself and you look at your life right now, is there any area of your life where you're running away from God? Is there anything in your life where you know God's been trying to prod you and lead you and direct you toward one thing and you've been, for whatever reason, unwilling to do it? You've been going the other way? Somebody you need to forgive? God says you need to forgive, but you've been unwilling. Is there some ministry that God says you need to embrace, but you've been unwilling? Some sacrifice you need to make but God, that God wants you to make? You know he wants you to make it, but you've been unwilling. Is there something that you need to remove from your life, something, someone, some activity you need to remove from your life? Because it's not taking you up, it's taking you down. Some area of disobedience taking you down that you need to repent of, and you know it. You know it. But for whatever reason, you've been unwilling you've been going just the opposite way maybe you're here this morning you're listening to me somewhere today and you know you felt this in your heart multiple times over the years you felt the conviction of the holy spirit on your heart over the years and you know you've never surrendered your heart to christ you've never humbled yourself and admitted that you're a sinner and you're helpless and hopeless on your own you've never put your faith and trust in jesus you've never believed in him the way he said you need to in john chapter 3 verse 16 for example when he said whoever believes Whoever believes, you've never been willing to confess that belief. You've never been willing to demonstrate the reality of it through genuine repentance, the turning away from sin and the turning to God, through the obedience of, of being united with Christ in Christian baptism. You've never done those things. You know that that's got what God wants you to do. You've felt that conviction on your heart before, but you've never been willing to do it. Let me ask you a question. Why? Why? And why would you wait another day? Whatever it is, you can try to run away from God, but God's never going to run away from you. He's got a better plan for your life than anything you could put together on your own. Why? Why would you not embrace that today?
You can't run from God. Do it today.